According to the Sun, there were thousands of empty ecstasy wrappers littering the floor of the 250-foot-long hangar. Drugs, sex, sensation. Some newspapers have called Acid House Music a sinister and evil cult which lures young people into drug-taking. The message is certainly getting across. The organizers kept the location secret until the very last moment, which was the main reason, according to the papers, where there were so few police here and they were unable to act. Drug-crazed kids, some as young as 12, boogied for eight hours yesterday at Britain's biggest ever ecstasy bash. The party took place here, infiltrated by reporters from the Mail and the Sun. There's, there's meant to be a drugs-related craze. What do you know about acid house music? It must affect the brain in some way. Unless it's just the music that does it. it. All them lights flashing don't do you any good either, do it? <laughs> oh, Welcome to the 88 podcast with yours truly, Wayne Anthony. And on today's show, we've got a really great guest, someone that knows the industry inside and out, someone that's actually met all of the DJs, all the producers that we've listened to in the past. Gordon Mason, he's the producer and director of the most unseen film on the scene. They call it Acid. And I want to welcome to the show. Gordon Mason, how are you doing, Sam? All right, Ryan, how are you? Good, matey. Yeah. Gordon, so, mate, they call it acid. But before we get to they call it acid, let's talk a little bit about how you actually got involved in the scene. Because I remember I bumped into you into a few spots with your camera. But before we get to that, how did you get involved in the old acid house scene? Um, well, I, I mean, I was kind of evolved into it, I guess, in the sort of mid-80s. I was going to, like, acid parties in the woods and stuff like that up in Milton Keynes. I moved to London in 88, so um, I used to go to parties like that. And I used to also go, um, well, I did a dub sound, actually, in a club which was um, run by Eddie Richards up in Milton Keynes. So... Um, knew Eddie quite well and followed him wherever he DJed really so started going when he started playing house music and playing acid house we sort of started going to Clink Street and things like that but there was a lot of there was a lot of people in Milton Keynes that evolved into the acid house scene um like the Colston haters and um a lot of the sort of Shum regulars came down from Milton Keynes as well so that was that was it's a sort of natural progression from where I was to sort of get involved going forward, really. And it's interesting, really, because at Milton Keynes, that was one of those towns that they kind of built, didn't they? When when did they build Milton Keynes? It was it was um, built in '67, I think it was conceived. Oh, and, oh, uh, 60, oh the idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We were there in like the mid '70s, and it was sort of developing then and sort of growing culturally. Because sort of I remember the TV commercials. Because there's yeah, loads of TV it. commercials, wasn't there? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Milton Keynes and and so so here you were. You and it 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 was a bit of a, you know, it was outside of London, you know, and and it was it was a brand new town in effect. Yeah, 
yeah. you know, lots of new work. I mean, it's not that big of a town. And to think that you had all of these heads that actually came from there, <laughs> it's quite like, and did you all know each other? Well, we knew Tony um, and Charlie were in my school, same school. So Charlie okay. was the year below, Tony was the year above. Well, that's interesting because just for anyone that might not know who you're talking about, uh, to Tony and Charlie are basically their sunrise. So, so, so was you, a, uh, you was, was you already a filmmaker? At what time did you become a filmmaker? Um, yeah, I left school when I was 17. So that was what, 85 um, and got a job in the industry then. So as a sort of apprentice, so I was kind of making stuff around then. And that's why I had access to, um, equipment you know when the raves came along and the parties came along to kind of go and film you know yeah for sure and so and so was it a natural progression was you like was you clubbing it you know and I just thought mate hang on a second someone needs to record this or did you or did it come in a completely different way um I think the very first time I was making a pop promo because Jolly Roger had had their sort of hit with Acid Man and then I said to Eddie, your uh, apologies if the, the maker of their video was watching this, but I thought it was crap. So I said, Eddie, come on, I can do a lot better for you, mate. Let me do the next one. Okay. When Holly Roger did their next one, then I did the video for that. And that was why we filmed the first party. And then I just got to know some people like Anton and, you know, um, so we got into some of the other parties. Excellent. And so can you remember what was the first party you ever filmed? Energy at Westway. Energy at Westway. I mean, that was a fantastic party. We've had Jeremy on and Tintin and they've spoken about that day. At some point we hope to have Anton on as well, but right. that was a big event. That was, that was an epic yeah. event. I, I mean, what's the... I went in the daytime to cut, sort of, um, you know, just have a recce, meet the guys and sort of just check it would be cool to do it. And um, we got like a VIP pass, which I've still got, you know, and, and, and like access all areas pass to kind of go in and, and, and shoot a bit on, I was shooting on Super 8 that night. Nice. Mate. And, um, and my girlfriend, we went down there with, with these passes, like that got us everywhere, but we couldn't get anywhere near the building, let alone get you know it wasn't a case of getting yeah. security it was a case of getting down the street because it was just literally thousands of people outside so we had to climb the wall to get in with all our equipment excellent even if we had a pass <laughs> which was amazing because yeah. that's right because there was thousands of people inside and there was thousands of people hoping to get inside outside yeah <laughs> and yeah. so you and got caught up just... in that mainly yeah it got caught up in that yeah but it was so hot in there the film was just it was I didn't get a lot of footage in there because it was just so hot and the camera just kept steaming up and we were kind of wandering around like, you know, my girlfriend had a clipboard and she was sort of trying to take down the name of everyone we were filming and all this kind of stuff. This, oh my God. <laughs> we were like, what? <laughs> what are you old Bill taking names? It's just like, my God. So that was like a sort of, um, baptism of fire of filming those parties, I suppose.
Excellent. And so from that, you said you saw that there was something interesting because no one else was really doing it, was they? I mean, I know that there was a couple of people that was filming bits and pieces. I know Pops was filming bits and pieces, but yeah. there was no one really filming at, at that time. So you no, must have thought like... Want, they didn't want cameras in there. I think the reason we got away with it, because I wrong. was on Super 8. So it was kind of yeah. a bit more cool. And also we'd take flowers and stuff and give them to people and we'd sort of say, look, um, is it okay if we film you and I'll give you a flower and to people and we'd party first, like, you know, so that um, we didn't turn up in a sort of media truck, do you know what I mean? And just invade someone's space. We were sort of partying all night and getting to know people. Um, sure. And my girlfriend was a very sociable person. So she would really get to know everybody. So when we came to get the camera out from behind the DJ booth or whatever, then people go, oh, hey, it's you, you know, and it was all cool. So it, was, it wasn't like the media had suddenly invaded the party. It was just more like... Um, and and that's, that was quite a big thing because um, once they relaxed into it, it was almost like, because I know it's happened to me, even with you, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's a bit early to go into that, but I remember at um, the Freedom to Party party after, and you did some footage and I remember I came up to you, you were filming something and I came up to you. Do you remember that bit of footage? Yeah. No. I and you can, you can, I'm not actually on the camera, but you can hear my voice. Right. I don't think it was really was, mad. I don't think that was me. I think that was someone else. No, no. Was was you at the Freedom's party? Party no. filming? No. Oh, you wasn't? No. Oh, okay. Who, who well, is I, that I, then? Because <laughs> it's really funny because off camera, this chap's filming. And off camera, you, you just hear this voice say, who are you doing that for, mate? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and yeah. I recognised my voice. But So you didn't do the Freedom to Party campaign at all? No, no. Ah, that's interesting. But so so what happened? So did you, like, film at lots of different parties? Um, yeah, a few, yeah. I mean, not like, you know, I mean, I've got, in the film, they call it acid, I've got the stuff from me and other people that were filming, like a mate of mine filmed at Clink Street. I used to go to Clink Street, but I'd never take my camera, you know. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, you're right, because the fact is, no one, even as much as we would have liked to have recorded those moments, you know, for the future, we were so scared of being arrested by police. There, there, there was just no way. If we saw a camera flash, you know, we're taking the camera. If we saw the camera, you know, we're taking the film. You got. We're not going to take your camera off you or anything like that. But we're taking the film, and you got to go. You know, yeah. and that there was, was just. One, there was yeah, one, it's just looking after our own backs, isn't it? You know. Yeah, there was one incident actually at World Dance at the first World Dance. I remember, and I kind of overstepped the mark a bit and filmed this guy without asking him, and he just sort of walked towards the camera with his hand like this. <laughs> Never <laughs> a good look. Yeah. <laughs> Not and not through viewfinder. And I'm like, all right, mate. Look, I said, leave me. But like, I promise, I'll never use that bit of film because it's obvious you don't want to be on camera. I promise, I'll never use it. Like, and he was like, cool, yeah, all right. But, um, Excellent. And so, obviously, yeah, and other... no, no, no. Go on, mate. I'm more interested in what you got to say than what yeah, I've right. got to say. Yeah, well, there, was, <laughs> there was another time when there was these guys like. Because in the morning, I used to love filming when the summer's coming up because the light would be nice and all that kind of stuff. And people, like I say, you've got to know people. 
and of these three guys up on the speakers and they didn't want me to see their faces but they did the hear no evil see no evil speak no evil with towels like these three guys and one of them had a towel across his mouth the other one had a towel across his eyes and the other one had it on his ears and they were sort of dancing behind these towels and sort of playing with the camera like that it's just brilliant it's lovely yeah i do remember i mean we as i said it was imperative that we didn't actually get on camera and when i look back now it's when i look at it now it's, just, it's such a shame you know because we did it, they were such such great memories and now they're just locked in our minds and i really would have loved to have had some video you know i would, I would have loved to have some photographs of genesis parties you know i mean yeah there's photographs of other events but genesis events you know obviously we wasn't going to be able to take we well we wasn't going to take any photos ourselves we took some photos in the early days building up in the culture was it really yeah exactly it wasn't about cameras which is just such today with the selfies and everything it's just mad isn't it you know but so at what point so how so acid ass came and went you've got some footage uh from certain parties and then at what point did you decide yeah i want to make a film about this in the sort of mid 90s i guess i was i was in I was making documentaries by then, mainly arts documentaries and things like that, you know, editing, um, mainly editing documentaries, people like Melvin Bragg and that sort of thing, South Bank shows and other sort of, you know, top end at that time, top end television documentaries. And I just thought, you know, I'd love to make a document about the culture and so just sort of set out on what's become a very long journey <laughs> um and, and start, epic journey totally been an epic journey you know started recording interviews back then you know i think you might have recorded my interview back then in the 90s i think yeah. it was when i was in brick lane yeah we did well we did what i did was i did like research interviews where i just because to save because i was shooting on film so to save money and time um i did like research interviews on that on digital audio tape sure where i'd go and have a beer and a chat and just relax and sort of do a long long interview uh for two or three hours with somebody which you can do now on digital cameras but back then you couldn't do that on film it'd just be hellishly expensive to make a film like that so um so that would have been when I first interviewed you on that, I think. And then, I mean, obviously bits of those interviews are used in the film as well, because people are relaxed and chatting and and you can kind of delve a bit deeper. But then what I do is take those interviews, go away, transcribe them, listen to them, edit them. And then from that design, a sort of set of really focused questions that I would then go back with a film camera and shoot a sort of more um focused interview with everybody so i think when we caught up with you was a few years down the line but i'd already had that research interview in the bag sort of thing sure and again you know you was completely independent gordon it was, you did all your own money yeah yeah and you basically you just went for it you, you did it the whole diy fashion you took that approach you took that nick broomfield approach huh? <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, you know? I, mean, I didn't want anyone telling me what to do because I knew that it was you know I mean 
I've had a lot of consultants help me along the way, you know, researchers and Eddie has been a great help. He's done the soundtrack for it and he's sort of guided me on occasion and said, look, Gordon, don't include this because it's not, it's not really part of the scene or whatever like that. And I also, I had a lot of, when I was editing the film in its various different versions, I had a lot of screenings with people and I'd sort of, consult them and say look am I getting this right or am I getting it wrong and am I representing you right and all that sort of stuff like Carl Cox I went down and showed him when we shot a day with him in the studio and then I went and showed him the cut and I said look are you happy with this because I've put some edits in your music mix sure can you just give me a nod and say they're cool <laughs> I don't <laughs> want to be editing your music and making you look bad and he's like no 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 that's you know so things like that, you know, so as I've gone along, I've, I've always been sort of guided by people um, around me, you know, and that are in the film and that have helped with it. Oh, well, that's the thing is, it's, it's a massive subject. You know, I imagine you sit down with your pen and paper and it's like, okay, how many interviews am I going to do? Yeah. <laughs> and the, obviously you must have done that. You know, you've, you've, you obviously riddled down to whoever you want to interview but i imagine the list in the beginning would have been like quite vast huh? well it's grown i mean yeah, yeah. and it still grows would you believe wayne i shot an interview uh the weekend before last for the a film new one yeah oh, okay uh, are you doing a new film now okay no, this no, is new news film. Okay, right, right, right. I have a new interview. I'm still getting interviews. You know, I'd never actually... Wow. Two months ago, I'd never caught up with Fabio and Groove Rider. So, um, because at the time when I was filming, I think Groove Rider had been, been in trouble for something, hadn't he? He's been a naughty boy. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he was at BBC. <laughs> On an aeroplane or something. Thank <laughs> Yeah, well, <laughs> it was really funny though how they all came to the rescue though, wasn't it? You know, they got him out. It was, it was like okay, BBC yeah, came yeah. and got him basically. Right, so I finally, I finally got an interview with those guys about two months ago as well, which I'm putting in a new version at the moment. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. How many interviews have you got at this point? About I've shot. I think I've recorded about a hundred and I've filmed about 80 or 85, I think. So it's and, quite... and how many different countries have you been to? Um, I've done it mainly on the cheap because, um, so not too many really. I mean, I, I went to LA and did Paul Oakenfold in Hollywood because at the time I was editing and I was desperate to get his interviews. So, um, I went there to do that one, but the Chicago guys and Detroit, I did them here, just when they were over. Oh, that was we, lucky. We were there for a week and did a lot in Ibiza with Alfredo and various people in Ibiza a few years ago. So, um, yeah, that's about it, really. And the rest of them I've done in in England. Wow. London, Manchester, mainly. So let's just let's just go through some of the people that you speak to in the film mate so obviously Derek May yeah Derek May Joe Smooth 
No, no. You're going to okay. name two. I haven't got all these people. <laughs> oh, sorry. All right, let's not do that. <laughs> Who you got in your film, <laughs> bro? Who's in the film? Who's not in the film? Yeah, no, who's in the film? Who's yeah, in the no, film, mate? Well, Marshall Jefferson, obviously, the Chicago guy. Yeah. Got Marshall, Larry Excellent. Heard, uh, Robert Owens. Robert does a narration Excellent. as well. It's a lovely, lovely job because his voice is just so fantastic. Yeah. Iconic um, voice. I wanted him to do the narration because I didn't want some sort of horrible. Definitely not a UK voice. Yeah. You know, uh, doing it. Um, and it's part of the culture as well. He's a massive part of the culture. So it's, it's good. Yeah. yeah, And he's nice. Wise choice. Yeah. Um, so that's the sort of Americans and then like out of the UK, I mean, just mo mo most of the promoters and DJs and, and luckily as well, a couple of like senior policemen and politician and stuff like that. I've tried to keep it a bit balanced. Yeah, that. for sure. Just so that we get kind of their aspect yeah, and, as well. And I mean, you must have a really good rounded view of the whole scene, essentially, from, you know, from the DJ end, of the promoter end and the legal end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, um, and obviously, when we talk about the legal end, I mean, you're obviously the only person in the world that has footage of myself and Kenneth Tappenden, the head of the police pay party unit, in a room, not only in a room together, but playing a band board game called chess. Yeah, the rave game, it's called yeah. um, a band board game called chess, yeah. <laughs> the rave game, yeah. Yes, mate. That's um, that's a that's great, great footage. I'm glad you responded to that because I suddenly thought I thought uh, someone told me about the game and I thought, well, wouldn't it be really funny to get like Ken and and a promoter and then so I sort of I, I, I phoned Ken and I said, Wayne Anthony's challenged you to a game of rave game, you know, like he wants to play you, like, and he's like, yeah, okay. So I phoned you and said. Ken's challenged you to a game of rave game and you're like yeah all right so yeah like come on classic dude and, and and off you went yeah and it was that that was good we just like it's just it was a natural game and we just like flowed we had the camera on tracks in like a semicircle around you and we just let yeah. you for like an hour and a half and just you shot did. Stuff. and you like you had us in this darkened room with all the black drapes all around it and stuff. And, right. and he was, he was such a game for it. Wasn't he as well? Kenneth yes. came yeah. in his police uniform. <laughs> I'm sitting there with a smiley face and cause, cause hardly anyone's seen this footage. Right. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, it's in your film. They call it acid. Was, did you have a flash of it in the film? Yeah. It's, in, I... the film. No, it's in the film. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. But given that, not many people have got to see the film and I probably guess we should kind of, since we're on that, I guess we should move to that. Cause one of the biggest questions I always get asked is, um, why can't I see the film? They call it acid. I get well, that asked so often. You, you wouldn't believe it. I know. Well, it's just, it's such an underground film. I'm just trying to keep it underground and like only a dozen people have ever seen it. No, I'm joking. Uh, it's just, yeah, I'm like really it's, cool. It's an art piece. Yeah. Well, it took up like 15 well, years uh, of my life, but it's art. <laughs> you can see it if you can find it, but you have to. Yeah, find it. <laughs> yeah excellent. Excellent. Where you can watch it. 
Um, no, I mean, it's leave Easter eggs everywhere. Finance, man. It's just finance. I've put a hell of a lot of my own money into it, and I want to find someone that's willing to back the rest of it um just to get it out there there's all sorts of clearances and things that have to be done not just music but there's all sorts of you know films are it's not like an album or a book you know you can just write a book and get it printed or you can record an album and make a cd but to release a film is hellishly expensive hellishly yeah it's a laborious task it takes years and if you don't love what you do then you're in the wrong game as far as filmmaking is concerned yeah i mean yeah that's right i mean i've you know i've been doing it now for this film a long time so um but it, and would have would have been when when would it be an end to it though good because i remember <laughs> you know you'd finished already and i mean you're doing like what a typical artist would do aren't you you know it's like the longer i got it the more it's just going to keep growing so yeah. you know so have, what about have you thought of like netflix yeah. or anything like that because you know mate the thing what's different now and when you started this journey is obviously now we've got all of these streaming avenues that you can go down have have you thought about that yes i have yes and i have um you've had conversations no doubt well i have i I have with like some of them one of them i'm not sure if i should mention companies but i i did show it to someone about a month ago okay one of the big streamers yeah big big streamers and they loved it they said it was a brilliant piece of work and which it is thank you and um but it wasn't for them at the moment because it's not the kind of content they're looking for right at the moment but it's but it's a brilliant piece of work and it deserves to be seen and somebody snap it up right it's encouraging didn't have to say that all that No, no. no kind of thing but um it's encouraging but it's not as encouraging as yeah that's great they will have it <laughs> sure around. and oh. i don't see what could be more current than that i mean of yeah, course I it's think just getting it to the right desk at the right time yeah. i don't you know although i've been in the industry you need to get time, it to one of the old school heads that was there so yeah i was there oh. yeah i mean I have that's had- what happened with my book that's what happened with my book class of 88 you know sure, when i finished writing it because you know i'm not a writer even now i'm not a writer but i can tell a story and so when I finished, you know, writing it, I contacted Virgin, got to the, didn't get past the desk, you know, just contacted them, said, hi, I've written this book about Acid House and blah, blah. They said, nope, not interested. So I went away. I just did some more rewrites. I contacted them again two months later, said, hi, I got this book. They were like, no, not interested. I went away, did, you know, more rewrites, <laughs> even though they have, they want, they didn't even want to know what the title was, you know, so went away, did some rewrites, called them again about two months later. On that very same day, got through to the senior music editor who had been there, Ian Gittins, bless him. And he had obviously experienced Acid House firsthand. And this was on like a Friday, whatever, you know, on the Monday, I had a book deal. Yeah. So it is about getting to that right desk. You know, I, I, you know, I did, I did have a deal on the table from a company called Momentum Pictures years ago. Yeah, I know the company. Big company. Frozen, Wayne. I'm not sure if you can still hear me. Yeah, yeah. I can see you now. Yeah, you're back. Um, And they were interested in it. Um, 
but then for various reasons that didn't happen mainly financial again but um so can, can we just go over that again so what company was that that was a company called momentum pictures that was years ago and the, because the acquisitions director there used to go to clink street so <laughs> as you say he's yeah. like he's yeah. like yeah this is no brainer i love it yeah you know let's go um, kind of thing but it, it didn't work out and then i had another guy that was like interested in backing the whole thing and he's got a flat in Ibiza and he used to go out there all the time and he was really into the whole scene and he was going to give me all the money I needed and sort of back the project and push it forward. Sure, I, I right bet you've there. had a few of those. I mean, we all get those, yeah. you know. Yeah, we all get those. But then he sort of, you know, backed away and disappeared and it's very disappointing. It's like, you know, been kicked in the teeth a lot of times. And yeah, I mean, as an artist as well. I mean, essentially you're an artist. Yeah. And it does yeah, feel, I mean, it I, is demoralizing and, you know, which is why you have to love what you do. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Just because the fact it. is, you have, you have, you know, you know, I've been, I've been in all the documentaries essential, especially the mainstream ones. And they call it acid. I mean, I've seen it, I think I've seen it two or three times. And it's the best film that, I'm, not only that I'm in, that I've actually seen on the subject. Right, okay. I, I think you you encapsulate the message really well and you encapsulate it from someone that had boots on the ground yeah as opposed to you know someone that's just approached it with a clinical mind you know of putting a film together you know this was someone that had boots on the ground you you went to the events you knew the people and you could tell that by the interviews and your interview manner was very relaxing you know we we fell into it I mean, I think you interviewed me in Hackney Wick. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you did. In a, in a, a, actually, that's a famous graffiti yard. It's called the Paint Yard. It's right. not there anymore. No. But, but, no. Um, but yeah, it's a beautiful film. It really is. So tell us a little bit about that journey. I mean, what did you come to learn on that journey? Because, I mean, for example, yeah, I remember roughly around that time in the 90s, I think it was. Or not in the 90s. I think it may have been around the time when you started... You did my interview for the film and you yeah, gave right. me a CD-ROM. I don't know if you remember. And you said, okay, look, Wayne, take this. Don't share it with anybody. <laughs> At least wait until my after my film comes out. And your film has never come out. And so I've never shared it with anyone, you know. Right. But um, this whole thing with the declassified documents now, I mean, you must have read all those documents, yeah? Have you seen, uh, do you, you obviously know about them though? Have you seen any of the declassified documents that we could, no. that you could download from the government website? No, I haven't looked into Oh, haven't you seen any? No. Oh, go on. So basically it's got like letters from different departments of government uh, speaking about acid house parties and the nuisance of acid house parties and what they were going to do with them. Right. And different papers were put forward. I've actually got the documents and you can download them. Anyone can download them. And um, and in the documents, it basically they put some papers together about how they was going to tackle it. And it was an MP that put this 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 particular document together. But what came out of these documents was that they wasn't as concerned with the drug element as they were concerned about the noise. And it was the noise factor which actually galvanized them to actually take action. Right. which is quite surprising isn't it yeah, 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 yeah. you know 
there was no mention in these documents. Um, I mean, there was only one mention, and that was. I mean, I, I interviewed the MP. You know, I, I was that Graham Bright? Graham Bright. Yeah, yeah. I was talking about the same guy. I interviewed him, and he basically says it was health and safety that um, that they were worried about. You know, they were worried about the MPs are worried about their kids going to these parties and falling through. I mean, holes in the ground for sure. Or, or something, you know, in an empty warehouse that collapses, or there's a fire, or I mean, you know, sure. most of the but that sounds like promoters were quite responsible and held yeah. them, held them in venues that were um, safe. That were safe. But I remember I did go to a couple, and I'm sure you did as well. Like maybe you even went to the same one in couple <laughs> of years ago, Wayne. I went to one in Hackney Week in um uh, in no, like wasn't me. or 89 and that, it was that, a, i think that was atmosphere was that the atmosphere one no it was in a paint factory it was in a little warehouse oh. like that one behind you with all the brick you know yeah yeah in a paint factory and there was this long corridor with all these tins of paint stacked up no and it was way. way in and out and people were just going my god if this place goes up there is just no way we're ever going to survive this but what the hell let's have a good yeah. time yeah and that's the thing it didn't <laughs> you know no no we we, we yeah. took precautions like you know we wouldn't go in a derelict building we wouldn't go in a building that had windows smashed or i mean the the uh slough building in um the panasonic building is slough yeah i mean that had a couple of holes in the ground which i know that someone did fall down there and nearly break his ribs but apart from that, really, and but at that point, to be fair to us, it was a free party. And at that point, all of the parties had been closed down, more or less, by the, the police pay party unit. And so we were happy to get anywhere, although these buildings had no windows. So there was no glass issues or anything like that. Yeah. But um, so, I mean, that Graham Bright, um, what you just said, the statement that Graham Bright said, there that sounds like the clinical version because when you read these documents these documents they're focused it wasn't even on health and safety their whole focus was on the noise nuisance and there, there were even um there were even comments from people like uh virginia bottomley yeah where they were supporting making noise a legal offense and and then it and then the argument all became about okay one the parties two factories because that was also um, something that they were discussing that the noise element from factories and so they at one point they were actually trying to you know turn noise into a you know a legal activity mm, yeah. <laughs> which is just bizarre and so that's what they focused in on and if you remember rightly because a lot of the things that they were suggesting in these papers like they were sort they so it as again it was all based around the noise and so they were suggesting that inspectors would come in with decibel meters which happened didn't it i mean that actually happened it happens now in clubs here yeah well no that was happening in 1990 right yeah no that was part of your licensing agreement for you to even get the license that you will allow these inspectors and they would basically go outside of where your event is, you know, down the road to where your neighbors might be or something like that. Yeah. And this is how they brought them in. Yeah. 
um, and you and then they would measure the noise and then they would decide whether or not it was too loud and then the promoter would get fined based on that. So that's how they brought it in. They scared the public into, you know, believing that these acid house parties, you know, the, with these dodgy promoters selling drugs to kids of all ages. Um, they don't care about the noise. So we need to bring these guys in to control the noise factor and then we can find them. But what actually happened <laughs> was that these inspectors with these decibel machines, they were using them for christenings, birthday parties. So in the end, these machines and these inspectors were being used far more in everyday life for your christenings and your birthday parties than what they was during the acid house period. So it was very telling where it was going. Yeah. And in these papers, these declassified papers, they talk about it. And again, you know, it was it was a uh, Carolyn something was the name of the person that put the paper together. I didn't actually see any uh, Graham Bright stuff, but one of the main instigators for Margaret Thatcher. And again, this was reported in the tabloid and the broadsheet newspapers, and they all kind of honed in on it as well, was that Margaret Thatcher, she actually only was seen to do something when one of her um, one of her colleagues uncle or something like that he had some land next to someone who'd done a party and kept him up all night right okay and so and so we've got that letter that he sent in to his you know nephew or whatever who who worked with Thatcher and then he gave the letter to Margaret Thatcher and you know and then she replied you know said oh you know we're going to put a stop to this type thing <laughs> and so that's what the, the broadsheets and that's what the uh the tabloids honed in on they were saying margaret Thatcher didn't care about drugs she just cared about the noise next door to her friend's gaff <laughs> so it was interesting you know because i remember at the time as well i know i'm doing all the talking i do apologize <laughs> i remember at the time as well say again did they to begin with, they didn't even know about the drugs anyway, you see. You know? Yeah, well, that was one of the things. It was everybody kept it covert. We certainly did at our parties. You know, yeah. I mean, even I've said it before on the podcast that, you know, in Leaside Road, when we had Leaside Road in 1988, we thought that we were in a legal building. Um, it just so happened that the person who gave us this, you know, basically it was just this handwritten note saying that oh yeah you know i mean at this time we wasn't clued up to going to real estate agents and making up fake documents right our yeah. first document my first acid house document that i ever got was from this chap who gave us leaside road and it was he was a mechanic or something and the building was full of car tires and we had loads of car grease on the floor and oil and every, everything everywhere so he had his fingerprints all over it with grease and it yeah. kind of just said, like, you know, I such as such allow blah, blah to have this building for a private music business party. That's all it said. And yeah. so when the police came, we just presented them with that and they just accepted it and everything was good. <laughs> you know? So we were just partying on and there and everything was fine. And then suddenly um, that all changed when the policeman turned up one day and just said, look, the person who's been gave you that no is basically a squatter and he doesn't own the building at all and so you actually have to leave the building like within the next few days if you don't mind <laughs> so at that point we'd had a few parties in there and it was coming we'd just gone past new year's eve and it was time to hit the road so after that we had to hit the road but uh 
Yeah. yeah so that was kind of the state of play at that time, you know? Yeah. Um, so I've got an interview. I was listening to it this morning, actually, Dave Beer, you know, saying that, um, Beery, got son. they used to up North, you know, they used to at Leeds and Blackburn and that sort of thing. To begin with, they'd get pulled over by the police. This is hilarious. Actually. They get pulled over and breathalyzed by the police going to a party because the police would turn to, so they'd get their pills out their pockets and say, hold them for me, mate, you know. And hold them and then they'd get the breathalyzer and do the, and go, no, he's not drunk. And then they get the pills back, put them back in their pockets and get in the car and drive away, you know. Yeah, the yeah. They didn't have a clue what they were looking for. They just thought that everyone was. Excellent. Because yeah. again, at that same building, you know, if I saw someone, you know, skinning up a joint in the middle of the dance floor, as such, it's a big, massive warehouse. I, you know, I'll just go up to him and say, mate, you can't do that. And mm. and if I saw anyone that looked too young, I would go yeah. up to them and say, mate, you've got to go. Yeah, as well, I think, I mean, it was before the sort of official security, wasn't it, and all that kind of stuff. But everybody kind of looked out for, you know, themselves, each other, and the, the security were, were often very... Um, you know, if you overstepped the mark, they would pull you in and say, hey, you can't do that. You know, um, that's not on. And, but so, there were sort of unwritten rules and rules that everyone had to adhere to, weren't there, that that um, allowed these things to go on for as long as they did. Yeah. yeah. And to be fair, without the public's interaction with that and without the public listening to certain rules, we wouldn't have been able to pull it off. Like, if you can imagine trying to lead a thousand people you know, in a convoy or any amount of people. I, I've led, you know, a hundred people. I've led a few hundred people and I've led thousands of people in a convoy. Yeah. And you have to be able to galvanize those people, one, so they get amped up and they're all excited. But you also have to be able to control them. Like I've driven down a motorway, you know, having come taken um, uh, from a meeting point in a service station. Mm -hmm. And I've had a thousand cars behind me. But before I left the service station, I told everybody, listen, everyone's got to stay behind me. No overtaking me, no one in the middle lane, everyone driving safely, everyone behind me, anyone who messes around, when we get there, you're out. And to be fair, yeah, I'm, literally, I would tell them that. I would be standing on top of a car, thousands of people, you know, and just say, mate, this is how it is. You know, we've got to get there safely. We don't want the police to stop it in any way. So if we p follow the law, they're not going to be able to stop it, you know? And so yeah. I've had all of those people all behind me, thousands of cars just in one lane on the motorway. And so without those people actually, you know, doing what they was instructed to do, you know, we, we couldn't have pulled it off. Pulled it off. I've been, I've, I've actually been uh, with Jarvis, actually, where I remember we had about 300, 400 people with us and one of our warehouses got broke, got stopped by the police. And we were on our way back to wherever we was going back to. And someone had kind of said, look, there's a, there's another industrial estate. Cause it was still quite early in the evening. And someone said, there's another industrial estate just down the road. And I remember we all parked down the road and there was about, again, about 300 people. And we had all of these people hiding behind walls, <laughs> like ducking behind walls and skirting in between warehouses, about 300 people. Yeah. <laughs> like dodging security and things like that and all ducking and hiding behind cars and things like that yeah. you know and yeah. and everyone doing what you said you know being quiet when you said duck everyone ducked 
So without that participation, you know, we would never been able to pull that off. You know, I can imagine the same duck and three hundred people just ducked behind the wall. Yeah, you know, it's classic, classic moves. But so, how? So your film, you started it in the nineties. Yeah. Was there any point that you thought is finished? And then, since because you've had more time, you know, then you've decided that you'd you'd add to it. Um, yeah, I mean, I've, I've, yeah, I'm going through it at the moment. I'm going through sort of doing, I'm going to remaster it. My mate's going to remix it in Dolby Atmos and we're going to rescan the film up to 4K and all this kind of stuff and really polish it, you know, um, put these extra little interviews in. But no, I'm, so I'm going through all the old versions so that we can sort of um, construct this new you know, um, this new version. So there's been, I think three or four major sort of levels of it, you know, where it's been finished and then moved on again. Kind of That thing. must be quite exciting for you. After all this time, you know, it's been, was it 20 years? Yeah. 20 years now. And now, and again, in that 20 years, the formats have changed a couple of times, isn't it? It was a HD, full HD. Well, yeah, I've always used the highest <laughs> That's what I mean. <laughs> at the time, I was shooting on film or on yeah. uh, Beta SP in the eighties. Yeah, and then in the nineties, I was shooting on Super Sixteen film. Um, and then in the noughties, I was shooting on HD digital cameras, and now I'm shooting on six K. So cool dude but it must be but now that you're doing this recent transfer it must feel quite get you excited again no yeah i mean it's a lot of work yeah. going through the yes yeah, a lot of work thinking, my god what am i that and now I'm putting in and putting in little things again that i'd lost before and, and thinking yeah. like no that was really funny like that story with dave that i just found this morning excellent then with the, the police brutalizing him you know and um no, I mean it's just you know. I, 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 it I sounds mean, like it could be a TV series, mate. Well, it could be. You know, if yeah. someone came along and said we'd like it as a series, I guess it could be a series. But, um, but I mean, today, right now, how many interviews have you done? <laughs> well, I said before about eighty yeah. films. Oh, oh, sorry, I didn't. I didn't hear you say it before. I right, so you've done about eighty. Go on, son. Eighty, yeah. So I mean, it's 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 uh, and recorded a hundred on. Audio. Wow. So it is. Um, yeah, I mean, it surprises people because normally in a documentary you only have like a sort of a dozen or twenty tops, you know. So filmmakers, even my friends who are filmmakers, is like say, "What? You've got how many? How can that possibly be true?" You know, but <laughs> it's all firsthand information like i say yeah. you know, if if like we're talking about um you, you know a, a party then up pops the promoter of that party or the dj who played at that party or someone who went to that party i've not got like a sort of generic half a dozen people like some tv documentaries do where they talk about things that that places they weren't do you know what i mean but things they yeah. know it's all everyone is like first-hand experience kind of thing like they were like right there on the spot sure no though the, the people that you interview they are all important ingredients of the whole puzzle 
you know, yeah. so and most, without a most doubt. people, you know, like Noel Gallagher, I got um he's a bit of a surprise one because um not many people think of him as being a raver, but he actually was. And I filmed at a party up in Rochdale called Joy in 89. And it was a big event. That was a well-known event. Unbeknown mm. to me, he was there, right? And his mate, so you got wet, you got uh, Noel Gallagher, and then you've got his mate Scully next to him. But Scully had on a nice psychedelic t-shirt. So I'm filming Scully, filming Scully's t-shirt because it's colourful and all the rest of it, and he looks great. And unbeknown to me, the guy stood next to him was going to be like one of the most famous rock and roll musicians in the world years later. And um, Excellent. anyway, so then I caught up with them. I met someone that they knew and all this kind of stuff years later. And then they said, hey, Noel was at that party with his mate. And then so then I sort of show them a bit of the footage and he goes, yeah, that's me there. And then that, when I meet up with them, they go, yeah, I remember you. I had a conversation. No way. Like, you know. So there's great little stories like that that come out of it with these people. And as soon as I kind of show them some stuff and they get into it, then they just like really, you know, they really open up on the whole generally and, and sort of it's happy memories, isn't it, for a lot of people? For sure. It's some of the best memories of our lives because I'm sure there's some epic moments in our lives, like yourself, you get married, you know, you have children, you know, and you can never put, things like this before that you know but to me i've done some amazing things in my life since then but i feel like it it was the whole entire experience and it was you know it was brand it was brand new you know the the release of the inhibitions you know all of those things the traveling all the traveling and all the meeting of all new people i think all of the and the music and the drugs i think all of those things together yeah. is what made it what gave it that impact and yeah, yeah i would never forget it i would never forget it i think it's i always say to the, you know, sorry mate, go. the community still exists you know because it still, still exists mate i was out on sunday actually <laughs> and, uh, you know you're not allowed to dance these days i got sold to sit down by the security you know for like how bizarre at my table it's the, bizarre isn't it mate i mean again i know people that are doing parties and bless them and i hope they're successful at it but I it's met, bizarre, yeah. I met these guys at the table next to me, and like you know, I, you know, they're sort of in their fifties as I am, and and like so we got chatting. Oh, where did you used to go and all this kind of stuff, and like you know, Dungeons or Clink Street or whatever like that, and you just get chatting to these people, and it's just like, yeah, I remember that, and yeah, it's an amazing thing. And when when you was making when you're doing all these interviews, I mean, that must have been quite something. Because, I mean, who did you get? You got Sunrise, you got Biology. Did you get Jarvis? Yeah, yeah. From yeah. Which is, that's rare because I tell you what, Jarvis, he's, he's quite shy when it comes to sitting in front of the camera and declaring shit, you know. He said, me sitting in his chair with lights on, waiting for him a few times, you know, live mic. I'm just like, yeah, and, and he doesn't. Yeah, so you, that's a rare treat that you got there. I tell you what, I was even doing an interview with Jarvis once. And I, again, I convinced him, come on, Jarvis, just come and do it, mate. Come, come and do it. And it was a live stream. It was this internet event. And it was a live stream. And he got up in the middle of the interview and just walked off. <laughs> he said, got a phone call. I've got to go. <laughs> nah, so, I mean, so that's rare, mate. So you get an interview with Jarvis. 
I've done two because the first one, um, he yeah, was always the yeah, yeah, the show tip, show room, and um, so we arranged another one and did another one, um, which was much better. And I'm so pleased we did because the second Excellent. one was great. And Tony, did you get Tony or did you get Charlie? I got Charlie. Tony came, but at that time he didn't want to be on camera. Um, yeah, he still doesn't, to be fair. I got very excited because um, as I'd arranged to interview Charlie and Tony came walking down the street with her and I thought, my God, he's going to come and do it. It's yeah. Old. And the first thing he walked up to you goes, Gordon, don't get excited. I'm not going to go on camera. I just came because it was you. And I'm going to sit at the back of the room. So I interviewed Charlie with Tony sitting at the back of the room and... Um, it was it was you know it's nice to see him after all these years and stuff. Totally. oh yeah because they went to the same school as you at the same year charlie was a year below i think yeah okay how yeah. mad so like a little school reunion dude <laughs> do you remember him from then as well everyone remembers tony yeah 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 tony's a character mate listen i've been in a few different countries with tony and I had a lot of fun with Tony. <laughs> Absolutely a lot of fun with Tony and Charlie. They're two great people, again, that I, I remember. And this all goes to what I was saying earlier. And, and, I, and I say it to the people that I interview. It's, it's just bizarre how we've, we're all locked into one another's lives for the rest of our lives. Because, you know, there's even a yeah. couple of people that I don't necessarily get on with. But they're still locked into my consciousness forever. I still remember them, you right. know. Yeah. And so that's so to 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 and that's why you know documentary filmmakers like yourself are so important, and and that's another reason why I do the podcast as well is so we can document this history, and yeah, right. you yeah. know we can take ownership of the people that are actually there, you know they can take ownership of it rather than you know outside people who come in and with you making the films, you know again you can only interview so many people, you know in in one film. Um, and with the podcast, it gives a lot of different people opportunity to have a long form discussion about what they did, you know. And so that's what kind of excites me about the podcast. The audience of this, what, what sort of people will watch it, listen to it? It would listen to? This podcast. Yeah, well, this is it. People, well, people receive information in a different way now, don't they? Like, for example, podcasting. I mean, is it a younger generation that are watching this? Oh, oh, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Well, it's the old, it's mostly the older lot that watch it and listen to it, to be fair. But yeah. there are lots of young youngsters that are interested in the history of the music that they currently enjoy. Yeah. So we do get lots of new listeners. I, we, we get a lot of people that will say, hey, hi, you know, I wasn't there. I was too young at the time, but it sounds really exciting. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, because I mean, I guess it must sound really exciting because it it was exciting. And Again, you know, that's why it's so valuable that filmmakers like yourself document this history, you know, so people know, so people know who the people involved, because you know what I've seen recently? I've seen um, there's a big debate going on about, <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. There's a big debate going on about where house music comes from and whether the people that pioneered it were black and or white you know and I, i've seen a few of the old school guys defending their positions you know kind of reconfirming that hang on this music was made by black producers 
Yeah, and Martin I just did an interview last week, didn't he? Where he was. Oh, is he? He's saying exactly that. Yeah. That, that... Oh, okay. There you go. Oh, okay. So at least it's public. It's out there. He's feeling discluded by the EDM scene because um, they're not um, talking about the roots. Ah, see, I did see that's what it must be because like one of the you know, I'm so pleased that I've got all these guys on camera because um I mean you and I both know that the whole acid house scene was about racial equality and coming together sure. classes and different classes, different colours, totally. all yeah. sorts of different types yeah. of people and everybody getting along, you know, but the actually the music roots. Marshall was saying that it was like it's like what happened to rock and roll. It was it's been taken dance music, electronic dance music has been taken over by um the white cognoscenti in, in America, you know. Um and I guess that must be quite difficult to see. I mean, you know what? I mean, even for excluded like that when yeah, you're you're such sure. a part for sure. And because I've seen them defending their position and I, and I, when I saw it, I thought who could even be debating this topic? You know, I kind of just ignored it because I just thought, no, who could even be debating that topic, you know? And um, again, but there's a few of them doing it. And I guess even since I've been doing this podcast, you know, I, I've thought about DJ Pierre and I was thinking, I guess for him as well, because I've seen him defend his the position as well, you know? And I thought, I guess for those guys, remembering that none of those guys took any drugs. <laughs> Those house guys, they wasn't taking drugs and making music for like, you know, the drug culture or Most the drug generation. Were. Some of them were. Most of them weren't. Yeah. 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 No, but the key guys that we're talking about, I mean, yeah. I mean, maybe at the warehouse, like the Larry Levan time, you know. <laughs> but your key guys, like your, your Derek Mays and your Joes and, you know, your Tyrese and these guys. And when I say drugs, I mean, they're not taking these, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Well, was they? Yeah. Do you know different? I think, I think there was there was um i've been told there was ecstasy at the warehouse oh no it's definitely ecstasy there because they've ecstasy's and, been around for acid, a while acid at the music box so yeah definitely so but whether um, they were taking it or not no i don't i don't i think yeah I mean, don't get me wrong right. yeah obviously you're not you're not going to say yeah they were taking it <laughs> i was there i'll tell you it was <laughs> as you say you know yeah as you say, I think most of them. It's like, interesting, but it's interesting to hear, like you know, um, well, look, I'll, I'll stay on track to what I was actually saying. So, you know, so none of them, you know, hardly any of them took drugs, or the likes of DJ Pierre, you know, the likes of Derek May and those dudes, they didn't take any drugs. So, so suddenly, so DJ Pierre, he creates this new sound called Acid House. He names it Acid House, and you remember in the beginning, you know, I remember there was all types of newspapers trying to give you where that term came from yeah and no one was ever saying oh no it was this dude dj pierre you remember it was always to do with burning tapes and burning clones of tapes acid burning i mean i've even seen clips yeah. of the bbc That's journalists so yeah you know i've even seen clips from bbc journalists explaining where the term acid comes from and 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 obviously we had no internet at the time, so the information would have been hard to get to. But today, we actually know that one guy created it, and it was DJ Pierre, and he created that term "acid house." But then, and that was just to describe music. Where when we use that term, when I use the term "acid house," I use it to describe the whole culture. 
you know and that culture begins in 1988 and it kind of really faded 1990 but i just about include 1990 but really it was more like you know a year or a year and a half or something i mean acid house music in itself you know yourself gordon uh, it, it wasn't around that actually long you know it in 1988 before I started doing parties, it was all acid house music, all acid house music. In the beginning, when we started doing parties, we started, it was a mixture between Balearic because we had the likes of Tony Wilson. So we used to play Balearic stuff and we'd have acid house. But in terms of the producers making music, by that time, they actually stopped, you know, like mid 89 on that build up, they stopped making acid house. And a lot of UK producers were making Happy House and, you know, all different types of music but generally speaking when i so when i use the term it's to describe everything that happened in the culture yeah so i guess if i was that dude and when and i guess as well when you look at it from the outside it might appear that it was driven by loads of english white kids when the reality is it we all drove it there, there was no one identifiable group that we pushed this forward it was a joint effort that we all did together and so we can't single anyone out it's just like no no we all did this we all grew together we held a, we held hands we booted off those doors together yeah. you know and and so that was what was so impactful of, of the times you know and yeah. yeah and so to to for now for people to debate whether or not you know it was black producers to make the sound I feel really bad about that. And sometimes I feel because I use the word in such a generic way, sometimes I do feel a little bit guilty because of those dudes. And, and imagine if you're Pierre, yeah, you've never even taken drugs and suddenly this whole culture, although you're happy about it because it brought your name to the forefront, it brought your music to just to Europe, to this generation of people that otherwise wouldn't have heard your music. Yeah. That's positive. Yeah. The but, music is the sort of push and a pull thing anyway. And, you know, yeah. a lot of those, especially the Detroit guys, I mean, the Chicago guys were basically trying to copy disco music, right? But they could Well, they say something different, though, you know? I mean, you've interviewed them, so you, you've probably listened yeah, to their words more than me. Yeah. 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 And the Detroit guys were more... Because Tyree kind of says something different, you know? Like, I, I interviewed Tyree, and he's saying something different. Like, he was saying that although people try to connect the origins of house music, the history of it to disco, he yeah. was saying that the fact is they were calling it, they were calling it house music before house music was even made. So he was saying like in 1978, they were calling house music, which wasn't house music. He said that it was really mainly disco. He said, but they were calling it house music and it wasn't house music. You yeah. know, he said house music came and they're trying to kind of separate themselves from the disco thing, you know, because they're saying, no, this wasn't disco. They developed out of that. Yeah. I mean, I'm not. Yeah. But that's that. what I'm trying to say. They're trying to say, no, <laughs> this is completely different. This is not disco, you know. But they're influenced. I mean, they're influenced by massive um, different people. I mean, they'll tell you. Yeah. Yeah. Them, but like, you know, Marshall yeah. was influenced by Pink Floyd. Sure. For instance, you know, sure. listen, open your eyes and stuff like that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, uh, the and guys, the boys, the Detroit boys. It was mm. New Order and the Human League and craft work and craft work and, 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 and some of the German acts, you know, like DF and 
people yeah. like that, you know. And if you listen to those old tunes, soft cell, you know, if you listen to a lot of that old European electronic music, it's not a million miles away, you know. And they, they took it, yeah, they took it a stage further, but music is just a sort of, I always think of it like it's in waves, you know, where it just sort of tumbles over and engulfs what came before, but then brings something new to the forefront. And then that kind of, you know, so it's, it's not a, a black. Sure. Or... Well, once it's out, it gets remixed, doesn't it? I mean, and that's kind of what happened with house music in the UK, isn't it? It came to the UK, you know, by the time the kids, they, they would dance to it first, embraced it, and then they started making their own house music and then the house music changed but yeah again but i always pay homage to the to the boys that started it how can you not you know yeah yeah, yeah. and so obviously you're still on this journey i mean you, you're still a filmmaker today that's basically what you do isn't it yeah mainly editing yeah 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 you're quite a well-known editor and you're quite you know high-end editor as well i believe yeah yeah. been about in your son you've been you've edited some really high-end shows in your time i've been editing for 35 years so. yeah mate god son yeah. and so and so what's your so i guess the, so for you the next challenge is getting it back getting it remixed getting it re-digitalized getting it up to speed 4k and getting the film back out there yeah is that yeah, basically yeah. that's your thing and yeah. on you know if a tv series comes would you, you would consider that too uh, it, it depends, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, that you know, eight interviews an episode or something. Well, I wouldn't divide it up like that, but yeah, 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 no, 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 that's too, that's too clinical. <laughs> yeah, eight in this one, eight in that one. I don't want someone coming along pulling my film apart and telling me what to do because that's not what yeah. I've been for, you know. Um, and, and that's always been part of your fear as well, for sure, mate. You spent so much time, and I just, you know, I, I, I. I've taken advice and I've taken um, guidance from people that were there. Sure, definitely. People that were pioneering the thing and, you know. Yeah. I mean, they Robert, call it acid again. It's the best documentary film out there. He, he, he was like helping me get through all the Chicago stuff and like, you know, what shall I say here? You know? Yeah, yeah. For sure, mate. Honestly, it's a great, that it's a great film, mate. It's a great film. In it, you know, it's not, it's not a message that was written by an executive on the back of a bit of paper. It's something that's evolved through all the contributions of the people that were kind of. Yeah, and you've gone through a lot of hardships while making this film. It's not cheap, is it? No. Well, you know, and in that time, you've got married, you've got children. You know, it's, it can't yeah, be easy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and so. Yeah. And so what, so what do you think, did you think you have a, so obviously before that you were doing private screenings where no money was exchanging, just all private invites. So you've, you've stopped that essentially. Um, well, I, I mean, if I'm ever going to sell the, the only way I'm ever going to sell the films by showing it. No one sees it. Yeah. 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 Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it's not like, you know, yeah. Like yeah. But wouldn't that, well, isn't that more of like going to an office and showing them? I've shown it to the cast. Yeah, yeah. yeah I've yeah. shown it to some of the people, as we said, you know, as you said, I've shown it, I've done some private screenings where I've shown it to people like yourself. And I've shown it to some people that are sort of influential in the scene to sort of gauge it. 
and that sort of thing. And I've also shown it to some industry people. So, sure, you know, it's like, so so. Is, do you think there is there a timeline? Will we see it in twenty one? I don't, you know, Wayne. Twenty two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's I, the big I, question. It's like when someone says to me, "When's the next Genesis party?" You're like, oh, yeah. "Just get away, mate." Do you know what I mean? No, on, <laughs> on one of the interviews I recorded in nineteen ninety eight, there's a sort of overrun of the sound. The sound always cuts after the film cuts. Yeah. And I'm listening to that one of those interviews, and someone said, "So when's this coming out, Gordon?" And I said, "Oh, hopefully in the spring." You know, that was like nineteen ninety eight. Excellent. Excellent. In the spring, here I am, twenty years later, and twenty-two. Excellent. And it's still. Well, I tell you what. Why don't you, when you do get a deal, obviously I'll get in touch with you. Yeah, come, come, it, come, come back on the show, and we know we'll see if we can give it a big push and come on and talk about it, mate. And we're trying. We're. I tell you what, we'll do. It might even be a a nice one to do. Is um, we'll do like a joint Zoom or something. We get a couple of the characters that are in the film, and we'll do like a you know yeah. a group zoom or something yeah that'd be good get eddie because he's done the soundtrack maybe he'll yeah yeah exactly exactly we get a few people in there and mate i mean i know you've got lots of lots to do so i'm not going to keep you all day uh, but we i will say that i'm really really looking forward to seeing this film again because okay. I, not only have you I've, you've done really well in that the people that you've trusted with that dvd because i remember there's someone that we both know who's a who's a millionaire and you trusted them with the film and they wouldn't give it to me i asked them for it i gotta be honest with you you know Uh, i've never i don't think well i don't say yeah yeah no i'm not gonna say i'm not gonna say right and i asked him for it and he was like no no and so i give it to him you know so my point i'm trying to make is that um mate this is the most anticipated film that no one has ever seen before you know and no one's there's no way just so people who are listening or watching you're not going to find this online so don't no. waste your time you're well, not going to find it you can go to they call it acid.com and watch the trailer for your heart excellent go to they call it acid you can watch the trailer there.com you yeah, can, just let me know i just want to say it's not it's not a deliberate ploy that this film is not coming out i desperately want this film to be this seen. is art man it's art <laughs> it's not a sort of it's not like a sort of one of those art pieces that i'm sort of cagey about i desperately want this film to be seen by millions of people around the world i just haven't found the right outlet for it yet so yeah because not only do you want the film to be seen you you want to keep control over the film you yeah. want to create editorial control over the film at the very least. So if anyone out there is watching and you can make it happen, give the geezer the funding. Get in touch. Yeah. Get yeah. in touch, mate, you know. So is there anything else you'd like to add? Yeah, I don't think so, mate. No, no. Yeah, mate. It's good to talk to you, brother. It's yeah, good, good to talk to you, mate. It's nice, especially in lockdown. and Yeah. And um, we'll definitely do it again, mate. Yeah, I, I look forward to it. And we're definitely... You know, again, if you ever need me for anything, and mate, if you like, I would love to get like a a slide shot or some sort of photo, a screenshot from myself and Kent Happenden playing that chess game for the um for this. Yeah, no, no, just for me. Uh, Okay. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, just for me, bro. Just for me, mate. We should have done, shouldn't we? No, I never ever got one. 
No, okay. Well, I can take a grab of it. Yeah. Yeah, mate. If you don't mind, and I, I won't share it or anything, you know. Unless, can I share it? Um, I, I, not, I not like. Yet. It, no, not yet. Because I yeah, like. Yeah, it. yeah, not yet. I could use it as a promo. I could because you could use it as a promo, can't you? Yeah, first yeah, of all, yeah. you hear your voice and you think, "What's this?" And then you're like, "Really, really?" And it kind of like reveals in the film. It's like a bit because there's a lot of funny moments in the film. I'm putting another couple in yeah. as well, actually. Um, and bless Kenneth, yeah? He said to me, do you remember he said, um, oh, you want me to lose, obviously. And he was going to... I'm like, no, dude, just play the game. Whoever loses, loses. But he was willing. He was so game for it, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. And I feel like that's one of the big turnarounds from the scene as well. The way that Kenneth has been addressing, you know, in his interviews, the way he's been addressing these issues. You know, you know, when I, I interviewed Kent Appenden, right, outside uh, Scotland Yard, the first time I'd met him, I turned up with a jacket with all those arrows on it and a little hat, you know, with arrows on it. Oh, no, like a prisoner's outfit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I turned up in a prisoner's suit and um, he's like, you know, to interview him. And then when we finished the interview, he goes, he goes Gordon, he goes, you have to wait there. He goes, I'm going upstairs. I'm going, it was Sir Paul Condon at the time or something in the chair on, he was the top man yeah yeah the top man he goes right there Gordon I'm going up to his office I want to get him to look out the window because he won't believe me <laughs> excellent mate and he just turned out to be a lovely man didn't he you know yeah, yeah. and he's so honest I felt like he's really honest which is rare it's rare you get such a decorated policeman mm. to be so honest like that and to be going against the grain as well you know and that's what I appreciated about him and that's why when you rang me that day, I mean, that was classic, you know. Hey, Wayne, you know, this is you. Hey, Wayne, you know Ken Tappenden? Yeah. He's challenged you to a game of rave. It's like, what? Yeah, I'll play. <laughs> so that was such a move you getting us to do that, mate, honestly. So, again, thanks for taking the time to do this, Gordon. I know you're really busy. And I will really, I look forward. Again, people can go to theycallitacid.com to watch the trailer. It's a great trailer. It's a great film. Keep an eye out for it in the future. And again, we'll hope to see you in the, again in the future, Gordon. Okay, no worries. All right, so okay. loads of love. Loads of love to the family as well, because obviously I know your wife. Loads yeah. of love to the wife, yeah? Yeah, will do. Thanks, Ray. All right, son. It's nice to see you, brother. Take care. See you Bye. soon. Bye, mate. Do you think it anything to do with a certain religion, do you think? No. Is that anything it? like that? No, it's no. more to do no. with a kind of a drug, isn't it? According to the Sun, there were thousands of empty ecstasy wrappers littering the floor of the 250-foot-long hangar. Drugs, sex, sensation. Newspapers have called Acid House Music a sinister and evil cult which lures young people into drug taking. The message is certainly getting across. The organizers kept the location secret until the very last moment, which was the main reason, according to the papers, why there were so few police here and they were unable to act. Drug crazed kids, some as young as 12, boogied for eight hours yesterday at Britain's biggest ever ecstasy bash. The party took place here infiltrated by reporters from the Mail and the Sun. There's, there's meant to be a drugs-related craze. What do you know about the Mail and the Sun? 
know about acid house music? It must affect the brain in some way. Unless it's just the music that must does be. it. Who All knows? them lights flashing don't do you any good either, do it? <laughs> I, I wouldn't even go in the uh, pub where them lights are. Oh, no, no.